He's Pittsburgh-born, and we like him that way. What an incredible Cinderella story. This unknown comes out of nowhere. This is the Adam Crowley Show. Cinderella boy. On 970 ESPN, and now on 106.3 FM. Live to the Terrace on 5th, it is the Crowley Show, where your mom listens and you should too. 412-922-2874 is the number to call. Or you can join the cast of dozens and follow me on Twitter, at underscore Adam Crowley. I got four days left until I'm off for nine. So, I'm kind of mailing it in this week. From five until six, my man, Jason Mackey of the Pittsburgh Post, because that'll be joining me. We'll be talking pens as the Ottawa Sens are in town tonight. Last time they were here, Game 7, Conference Final, Chris Kunitz, back of the net, and the Penguins advance to the Stanley Cup. The Sens now, though, they stink. They got 47 points. Guy Boucher is even more annoying when they're losing, and they're about to sell off some key assets, including Derek Broussard and J.G. Pajot. Keep an eye on both those guys, though, because... They're both pivots, and the Penguins need centers. There's a big difference, many big differences, between this year's Penguins team and last year's Penguins team, the one that did eliminate Ottawa in the conference final. Of course, no Marc-Andre Fleury, no Matt Cullen, no Nick Bonino, no Ron Hainsey, no Chris Kunitz. I think these Penguins, as currently constructed, these Penguins right now are better. Latang, better than Hainsey. Ian Cole's now playing his best hockey in a Penguins uniform. The Penguins can actually win with defense now. This team can dominate. Last year's team merely survived. Shane, he's better than Benino right now. No Kunitz, no Cullen, no Benino. That does hurt the dressing room, but I think that's overrated. You don't think Sidney Crosby and Evgeny Malkin and Matt Murray have created a pretty good dressing room? Chris Letang and the addition of Ryan Reeves. Plus, there's the young guys, Connor Sherry and Jake Gensel. The Penguins don't need to add any character to the locker room. They've got plenty of character. I think it's insulting almost to Sidney Crosby to suggest that they need more character. These Penguins are different, to be sure, but I think these Penguins are better. What say you? 412-922-2874. Tweet me at underscore Adam Crowley. That's not to say that the Penguins are going to win the Stanley Cup. Last year, the Penguins didn't really win it because they were the best team. The Penguins won the Stanley Cup because they survived, because the Penguins were the last team standing. Uh, Everyone else eliminated in their wake. The Penguins didn't really dominate for stretches until games five and six of the Stanley Cup final. It took them all playoffs long to figure out how to dominate, and eventually they did. But this Penguins team's kind of started to turn it on since 2018 began. Crosby on fire. Malkin on fire. Kessel on fire. And now I think Matt Murray is starting to play some of his best goaltending goaltender of the season. So the Penguins to me are better than last year's team. The Eastern Conference in my opinion not as strong as last year. I think the door's wide open for Pittsburgh to win a third. Don't know if it's going to happen. We'll predict it to happen. But I think the Penguins with this team and this conference have a pretty darn good shot to get back to the Stanley Cup final. Four one two nine two 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 eight seven four. Tweet me at underscore Adam Crowley. 
I mentioned Jason Mackey will be joining from 5 o'clock until 6. He wrote his 20 thoughts on PittsburghPostGazette.com, published today around 9 a.m., and a lot of it focused on Mike Sullivan and the job that he's been able to do as the Penguins head coach. Go back a couple of years, he took over a struggling team. Last year, the team really needed to benefit from his ability to be a tactician because at times they were dominated in the playoffs. This year, though, it's a different challenge. The Penguins are coming off of unprecedented success in really the salary cap era, back-to-back Stanley Cups. They've got the best player in the world. They've got Malkin, who's playing like the best player in the world. And they've got Phil Kessel, who is one of the stars of this game. But having all those pieces didn't exactly lead to the Penguins playing good hockey in the beginning portion of the year. October through December, the Penguins were under 500, and they didn't look like the Penguins. They weren't scoring goals five on five. They weren't playing great defense, and goaltending was up and down, certainly in the early portion of the season. So the Penguins were in a rut, a rut that we haven't really seen since the end of the Mike Johnston era. And yet Mike Sullivan's been able to pull those Penguins out of the rut. The players deserve a lot of credit, but Mike Sullivan has been able to get them to buy back in. Something that I would imagine would be difficult after the last two years having the success that they've had. Imagine trying to convince anybody who's been on the last two cup-winning teams that games meant anything in October or November. They really don't. They mean as much, I suppose, as games late in the season, but the Penguins have shown the ability to flip the switch. And in flipping the switch, I think a lot of the credit needs to go to Mike Sullivan. But here's what's interesting to me. Mike Sullivan's going to have down years in his career. Mike Sullivan's not going to win the Stanley Cup a couple of times. In fact, he's probably not going to win the Stanley Cup more times than he wins the Stanley Cup. That's the way it goes in professional sports. That's the way it goes in the National Hockey League where they turn over coaches like their dates in college. Mike Sullivan will face adversity. Mike Sullivan will feel the wrath of the fan base at some point, and I just wonder how that's going to go. I hope that Penguins fans treat Mike Sullivan better than Penguins fans treated Dan Bilesma at the end. Dan Bilesma, one of the best coaches in franchise history, but Dan Bilesma got ran out of town with people chasing with pitchforks and torches. Mike Sullivan will have bad moments, and you know the saying, I bring it up all the time, that you're either going to die the hero or you're going to live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Mike Sullivan of course, is the hero. He's never done anything wrong as the head coach of the Pittsburgh Penguins. He's won all eight series that he's taken part in, and the Penguins are back-to-back Stanley Cup champions. But at some point, it's not going to be like that. And at some point, the Penguins, with all this talent that they've amassed, are going to, quote-unquote, let you down. When that happens, let's not chase Sullivan with the pitchforks and torches. Hell, it might even happen this year. Let's appreciate what he did Because in this league, and really in any professional league, it ain't easy to win. 412-922-2874. Tweet me at underscore Adam Crowley. Tim Benz brought this up yesterday on the Mark Madden show, uh, as he was filling in, much like I did on Friday. Crosby has won more Stanley Cups. Well, he's won the same Stanley Cup more times than Mario Lemieux did. 
Lemieux won it twice. Crosby won it three times. Lemieux's 93 Penguins, disappointed. That was maybe the best team that they had, and they weren't able to win the championship. And there and after, the Penguins were able to get past the conference final. Sidney Crosby's Penguins, they've been to four Stanley Cups. They've won three. They've been to the conference final in additional time. They've actually accomplished more than Mario Lemieux's Penguins ever did. That's not to say that Lemieux wasn't a better player than Crosby. Crosby's going to have a difficult time catching up to Lemieux in terms of the per-game averages. And I don't think many people would argue that Crosby is a better talent than Lemieux, and that's because he's not. But at what point can you acknowledge that Sidney Crosby and his Penguins have accomplished more than Lemieux and those Penguins? Lemieux racked up the numbers. Lemieux kept the team in Pittsburgh. Lemieux's done a lot of things off the ice that Sidney Crosby can never really live up to, although I can make the argument that Sidney Crosby also saved the Pittsburgh Penguins. But on the ice, are you ever willing to see that Sidney Crosby has accomplished more? It's tough to parse it, right? Because Crosby's teams have done more, but Lemieux did so much individually and had he away each. But for me, it's tough to argue that Lemieux, even with all his personal greatness, even with all of his flair and flamboyance and ability, can never be caught by Crosby. But he never did what Crosby did in terms of winning. So what say you, 412-922-2874, what would it take for you to see Crosby as even Lemieux's equal? For me, maybe a couple more cups. Tim argued the same thing. If Crosby gets five to Lemieux's two, you really have to consider what he's done and put it above what Lemieux was able to accomplish. If Crosby were to, say, win another couple of Smythes, I think that would also help Crosby in that argument. But what say you? 412-922-2874. Tweet me at underscore Adam Crowley. Steve Kerr, the head coach of the Golden State Warriors last night, said, eh, I'm not coaching the team. I'm going to let the players coach the team. And they beat the Suns by 46. They had fun. They haven't been having fun. And it got me to thinking, which Pittsburgh sports team's players would you trust to best coach themselves? Steelers, Penguins, or Pirates? Of course, if you break it up into sports, it's probably not that hard for, say, well, now I can't even name any pirates, but let's pretend you could name a pirate. It'd be hard for that guy not to be able to manage a baseball game. Really not that difficult. Whereas football, I think it is more difficult. And hockey, well, it's tough to determine line changes and coach on the fly when you're huffing and puffing the whole time. But in terms of the players in the locker room, I think the Penguins have the best chance to do it. I think the Steelers would claw themselves to death because they wouldn't know who to give the reins up to. And the Pirates, well, I don't even give a rip about them. Although here's my theory on the Penguins. Ryan Reeves would say, you know what? Let's make this a dog-eat-dog world. I'm going to beat everyone up, and I'm going to be the guy. Crosby's too soft-spoken to take over, right? Although, if it were an election, of course, it would be Sidney Crosby. A lot of people are interested on Twitter.com, 
at underscore Adam Crowley is the way to chime in on that. I also put up our unsponsored poll <clears throat> where you can vote. Again, at underscore Adam Crowley. Which Pittsburgh sports team's players would do best coaching themselves? Now, some are mad because Steve Kerr gave up all his responsibility and allowed the Suns to kind of free reign that thing. It was anarchy to some extent. And, okay, I, I get what you're saying. He's paid to coach the team. He's not paid to not coach the team. But it was a tactic that he used to win a game. That's really what he's paid for. And so what if the Suns' feelings got hurt? Tough nuggets, man. You don't lose by 46 and get to say that you felt disrespected. Have some respect for yourselves and find a way not to lose by 46 freaking points. But it's interesting to me that we talked earlier on in the segment about the Penguins and their inability to get things going early on in the season because the games to them just didn't matter as much as the last games they played, and obviously they didn't. Well, you look at the Warriors, they've gone through very much the same thing. They expect to get to the finals. That's the only thing they're thinking about. Uh, The rest of the regular season kind of just going through the motions for them. But this got them out of their funk a little bit. This allowed them to have fun. So I like what Steve Kerr did. I think that's a hell of a coaching job, even if there was no in-game coaching actually taking place. 412-922-2874. Tweet me at underscore Adam Crowley. Josh Getzoff, part-time voice of the Penguins, and, of course, the intermission host on the Penguins Radio Network will be joining me coming up next. I want to talk to him about the Penguins' third-line center situation and who's going to be the Penguins' trade deadline acquisition. We'll get to that next with Getzoff. It's a Crowley show live from the Terrace on 5th on ESPN Pittsburgh. Are you die a hero? Are you live long enough to see yourself become the villain? Former Pitt player Doran Dickerson tweets, The fact that Pitt has sent 13 guys to the combine in the last two years is impressive to me. Pitt had three of the most quality wins in program history in two years. That says a lot, IMO. I am going to shred Doran Dickerson coming up at 540. Before that, though, Josh Getzoff from the Penguins Radio Network joins me now on the show. Uh, Josh, I'm reporting exclusively that if the Penguins do not trade for Derek Broussard before tonight's game, he will score eight goals against them. That's uh, I don't think that's that bold of a prediction, Adam, but I'm going to go with you on that one. I think that he's pretty much been solid for his entire career against the Penguins, and he'd be a great guy for them to pick up. I just think there's more to it than uh, player-for-player swap, as you well know. Um, and I think that that's uh, you know what? not a bad prediction on your part for this matchup. Don't tell me what I know, Josh. Uh, Riley Shan <laughs> is now the permanent third-line center. Yes, that's what I'm reading, at least. The Penguins have fallen in love with what this guy's been able to do. Yeah, listen, he's been good. Uh, I think with the first couple months that they had him on board, there was a, a real strong production from him in the face-off dot, not a lot offensively. Um, and as we know, that was well-documented during the end of his time in Detroit that there wasn't a lot uh, offensively for him. But this year, I will say, he's been a uh, a breath of fresh air in a way, I think, for the Penguins from the third-line perspective. And that's not to take anything away from what Nick Benino's done the last couple of years, because we know he's a playoff legend as far as performances in Penguins history and then obviously how productive he was with the HBK line goes without saying but from a consistent 
perspective from Riley Shea, and I think there's been a little bit more there, uh, at least over the last couple of months. He's, as I mentioned, started really strong in the faceoff dot. Now you're coming in tonight, second time already in 2018 that he's got back-to-back games with a goal. I think really February has been his best month of hockey here for the Penguins, and that says something because he's basically played with new wingers for of the eight games or whatever this month, seven games this month. He's probably played half of them uh, with new sets of wingers each night. So I think it speaks volumes about his ability to uh, adapt and adjust and maybe just the overall comfort and confidence he's gained under Mike Sullivan and in this Penguin structure. I think that's one of the best attributes of Mike Sullivan, and we talked about Mike a little bit in the opening segment, but... Uh, I think Sullivan allows his players to go out, and he tells them, don't be afraid to make mistakes. Uh, I remember going back to his first year here in Pittsburgh. Connor Sherry comes up, and he would do some things at times that make you scratch your head because he's a young player. Jake Gensel last year, same kind of thing. But Mike Sullivan kind of just allows players to go out there, play their game, and I think that that's really benefited Shane. Uh, he's not scared, and if you go back and you watch some of the stuff he did in Detroit, it was almost like he was scared, a guy who didn't have any confidence. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that there's something to be said for a guy like Shane coming to Pittsburgh and playing behind guys like Crosby and Malkin, obviously the benefits that that can give us particular player, but you're right, I, I think with Mike Sullivan, he is very direct with these guys when he communicates with them. He tells them exactly what he's looking for out of them, exactly what he needs them to do to be successful in his system. And I know he's had that talk with Riley Sheehan, and he's had it recently within the last month or so, uh, just to kind of go over everything with him as far as the expectations from the coaching staff, the uh, management, and what Sheehan needs to do to be a better and more productive player for the Penguins. And I think, obviously, the results kind of speak for themselves. And he's responded accordingly on the ice. But you're right. I mean, this is a guy who's given the Penguins an option as a, a pretty dependable faceoff man. He's given them an option as another penalty killer uh, when Carter Rowney has been hurt here off and on over the last couple of months, really. Uh, and I think he's emerged as a guy that they don't necessarily feel all that uncomfortable with, thinking that they can put him out there and attempt to generate some offense for this team because he's done that here over the last couple of months. Yeah, do you have faith that he can play full-time with Kessel if that's what it winds up coming to? You know, that's going to be the big question. Um, to answer your question at this point, I'm not so sure, and that's a great answer, isn't it, because it gives you absolutely nothing. Uh, but <laughs> I, think, I think when you look at what he's been able to do to this point, there has certainly been a better offensive end to his game. Phil Kessel's game is offense. So, I mean, I think that there's an opportunity that they could work. Do I think that that's the absolute best-case scenario for this team? In the sense of Kessel being on the third line and Malkin being on the second line, yes, I do. I think it's better when those two are separated. But I'm not sure if Riley Shan is still the best option there. Now, with that being said, he might be your only option there when you look at the Penguins from a salary cap perspective and what they have the option of adding here coming into the trade deadline because Shan has been dependable. He's been effective. There's no question about that. Can he be a third-line center that's going to help put up points with Phil Kessel? That remains to be seen, but he certainly has put them in the right direction. I think maybe eased a little bit of concern from a managerial perspective with his performance here recently. Josh gets up, Penguins Radio Network joining me here on the Crowley Show. Gensel's not playing well, and I assume he's going to turn it around, but uh, there are definitely things in his game that he's going to have to work on, and Mike Sullivan kind of touched on those today. What do you think could be done to get him out of this funk? Well, I think what they're doing right now is, I mean, as we saw yesterday in practice, they moved him down to the fourth line um, with uh, Ryan Reeves and Carter Rowney. Uh, and yesterday it was Teddy Bluger with Rowney out of practice. And they took him off the top power play unit, which I found that to be the biggest eye-opener because 
Uh, you look at what the Penguins have right now, and, and without Patrick Hornquist, they've really lacked a guy to go to the dirty areas in front of the net, and maybe that's what Zach Aston Reese can give you um, with what they used against St. Louis and what you assume they'll come out with tonight as far as him playing on that top power play unit. But Gensel is an interesting case because he has played over a season in the NHL now as far as the accumulation of games. We all saw what he did in the playoffs last year. You know, you don't put up those kind of numbers that consistently and on that kind of stage and, and be considered a fluke. I think Jake Gensel's a pretty solid hockey player. He's a smart player, and that's something we've always talked about with him, that he can't anticipate well, uh, and he puts himself in a position to succeed. I don't necessarily know if he has done that all that much this year, and maybe there's a little fatigue. Uh, we have to remember that last year was his first full year, obviously, of just transitioning into the NHL game and all that, everything that comes with that, and then having to go into a short summer and come right back at it this year with the expectations being what they are. But Jake Gensel's a guy that's capable of scoring 20 goals in the NHL, uh, and I think the Penguins understand that, and he knows that, and that's the hope that he'll be able to rediscover that game. Now, as far as Mike Sullivan's communication with him, it's always going to be direct. As I mentioned earlier, that's kind of been his M.O. with everyone from, I think, back to Eric Fair a couple of years ago here in Pittsburgh to right now with guys like Gensel and guys like Cheyenne and even to a lesser extent guys like Daniel Sprong when they've been up here in Pittsburgh to tell them what the expectations are and what they need to do to be successful. So I think when you look at Gensel, this is a guy that the Penguins obviously want to see in their top six and they want to see in a, a more productive role. It's about him kind of rediscovering his confidence. They'll give him opportunities to do that, but at the same time, when he has those opportunities, he has to take advantage of it. It's hard to say he's done that to this point in the season, and you wonder uh, when he will or if he will, but there will be other situations down the line where you figure he'll be counted on, and hopefully he still has a, an ability to step up when they need him. Josh Getzoff joining me here on the Crowley Show. I almost called you Jake Gensel 15 times in my head just there, Josh, so I really had to battle myself there to make sure uh, that didn't happen. Uh, Josh, outside of the big four of Crosby, Malkin, Kessel, Latang, on this current roster, without Patrick Hornquist admittedly, Brian Rust might just be that dude who makes things go, no? Yeah, I agree, Adam. I, you know, Phil Bork, one of your good friends of the show, Borky, is uh... – he, he loves Brian Rust, and I love Brian Rust, too. It's hard not to. I mean, you can see what, when he's back in the lineup now just exactly what they've been missing, and not even just from his ability to kill penalties and, and his ability to, to keep defense, defensemen kind of modest with his speed, but he has a touch. He has a finishing touch that we saw in St. Louis. Uh, he has a nose for the puck that we've seen over time, and he has that ability to score a goal when the Penguins need it. You think back even against this team they're playing tonight, Ottawa, when they needed goals, uh, Brian Rust has scored them. Uh, in the playoffs the last couple of years. And, and then you go, you know, even more recently, as I mentioned, on Sunday where he gets that big goal that broke the deadlock early in the third period after the disallowed goal call. Um, he, he's a guy that seems to have a flair for the dramatic, and that's a very understated quality uh, in this day and age as far as teams making it to the next level, which the Penguins have obviously been able to do with Brian Rust each of the last two years. Has he been as a uh, focal point as he may be potentially this spring? No, and that's going to be another question to see how he rises to that occasion and plays for this Penguins team. But, you know, one thing Mike Sullivan loves about Brian Rust and as fans, I'm sure a lot of people love about him as well, is this is a guy that can play up and down the lineup. I mean, he could be your fourth-line winger, as yeah. we saw when he came out of uh, came off the uh, injury shelf a couple weeks ago, or he could be your top-line winger with Sidney Crosby, as we've seen the last two games in Dallas and St. Louis, So, and uh, again tonight, for that matter, against Ottawa. So his ability to kind of be a chameleon throughout this lineup, I think, is something the coaching staff loves, and he can be productive regardless of where he is, which is another bonus in his cap. 
Josh Getzoff joining me here on the Crowley Show. Uh, Josh, what does Ian Cole mean to the blue line? Because he seems to have played himself uh, from a guy who's going to be traded, perhaps, to now a guy that I think you need to have in there. Yeah, and you know, I'll be honest, and I, I know I'm not alone in this, but it was kind of puzzling as to why he was out of the lineup to yeah. begin with, because uh, Ian Cole has been a pretty productive player for the Penguins, really since you think back to when Mike Sullivan first came on board, and he sat basically about a month from this time, I think it was about two years ago this time, uh, he was scratched for essentially a month of hockey from the Penguins, came back and never left the lineup, uh, obviously in 2016 and then all last year probably being one of their more dependable defensemen, if not their most dependable last year, as far as having a career year statistically and just morphing into a really good tandem with Justin Schultz. Now, this year, he's had a few different partners. He's obviously gone in and out of the lineup as a result, but I think with what you've seen when he, since he's come back after missing those seven games, he's got the point production, which is something that is relatively new still in Ian Cole's game, but is, is definitely a welcome note. But how about the penalty kill with him back in the lineup? Yeah. I mean, you could talk about guys winning faceoffs, and that's huge. Carter Rowney has done that. Riley Shan has done that. They've gotten some shorthanded goals. Think back to Carl Haglin's against Dallas. But your defensemen are so key on that. On top of Matt Murray being really strong, I think, over the last couple of games, uh, the defensemen have been so good. And I don't think it's a, a coincidence that Ian Cole is back there and playing big minutes on the penalty kill as the Penguins' PK has started to rise up a little bit more because we all know he's not afraid to block shots, but he also plays a pretty – honest game as far as when he picks and chooses his spots to be physical and engage himself uh, against opponents and along the boards and for the puck. So I think that he's been able to do that at a really high level the last couple games. It's helped his game overall rise, and then obviously the Penguins have reaped the results in situational play. Josh, how has Hunwick handled not being in the lineup? Is he taking it all right? You know, I think that he puts on a, a smile and he says the right things, and that's you know, as much as you can ask for a guy that's been in the league for 10 years and I'm sure signed a three-year contract here expecting he was going to be an every-night defenseman, why wouldn't you? Um, and I think that, you, you know, you hear and you see what you see, and it's all positive from him, but I, I have to imagine that competitor inside of him wants to get on the ice. Now, the other side of the coin is this is a guy that came here because he, as he said in training camp, this is the organization that I had the best chance to go win a Stanley Cup with. So, he sees them winning, and he sees them rising back up in the standings. I think that has to be kind of twofold for him because, all right, your, your reason you signed here is happening. This team is having a lot of success. They're starting to hit their stride at the right time, and uh, unfortunately you're not a part of it on the ice right now. So that has to be a little difficult for him to stomach as far as watching from the outside. But this is a guy that's loved in that locker room. He's really taken a liking. Uh, a lot of players, I should say, have taken a liking to him that um, have been a part of the fold here in Pittsburgh with him being a relatively new guy in that room. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of guys that, you know, kind of still lean on him off the ice as far as just a veteran and a voice that he can be for this group. So he's kind of embracing himself in those roles right now, but he knows there's, there's one crazy hit, one weird tweak away from him being right back in the lineup and the Penguins uh, relying on him a lot uh, as this season winds down. Josh, the Senators are bad, and they stink. They got 47 points. What's the deal? I thought that they were going to be able to take off after last year's performance in the playoffs. Yeah, you know, it's been a combination of things, I think, uh, Adam. You, you look at the Senators, and it's interesting. I was talking to Cody Cece, their defenseman, today, and I said, you know, the last time you guys were in this building, is, and he kind of shook his head, but he knows why. The last time they were in there was when Chris Kuhn had sent them home uh, in double overtime in the Eastern Conference Final. 
that's how close they were to playing for and potentially, who knows, even maybe potentially winning a Stanley Cup last year with the run they had. I think it's no question that when you look at the Senators last year and everyone called them a Cinderella, they gave the Penguins fits because of their style. I would not necessarily say they would have been a Eastern Conference final, final two teams, two best teams in the Eastern Conference, just as far as the group they had. Sure. The way they played in the playoffs lended themselves to having some success. Craig Anderson played out of his mind in that Eastern Conference final, and a lot of things came, and the playoffs for that matter for Anderson as well. And a lot of things came together for them as far as getting to that point. Did I think they would be this far out of the playoff picture in early February? No, I did not. I thought they'd be hanging around because that's kind of what Guy Boucher teams do. Um, but they have just not had that success this year. They haven't really been able to take it to the next level. As I mentioned, they've had some injuries. Bobby Ryan has had a hell of a time staying healthy uh, this year for them, and they rely a lot on him uh, to, to be a pretty productive player. Eric Carlson has been a little up and down, which is crazy to say, but uh, you know he, he hasn't quite had a Carlson-like year for them overall. And I think you, you have a lot of pieces that haven't played to the level they did last year, and as a result, you're seeing a team that's fallen off quite a bit. What teams in the East scare you right now, Josh, uh, if you're a Penguins fan? Boston and Tampa, I mean, they're playing good hockey. Washington, I mean, you can never really be scared of them if you're a Penguins fan. Anybody else? (laughs) Yeah, you know, uh, Tampa's the easy answer just because of the depth they have. I think they're one of the few teams that can match up with the Penguins as the Pens roster sits right now, uh, if the two teams are fully healthy. Uh, You know, Boston, I still... I mean, don't get me wrong. They're playing great hockey right now. I wouldn't want to run into them right now. But my question is, with such a young group, are they playing that way in two months? Because that's really when it matters. We saw this from Columbus last year in December, playing out of their mind, whatever it was, 16 games in a row, 18 games in a row. But if you're not playing your best hockey when the season matters the most, which the Penguins have thankfully been able to do the last two years, it's not going to matter much when the schedule flips to the postseason. So I guess that's my big thing with the Bruins right now. I think they're playing great, and they have a great team, and we saw them firsthand right before the bye week, and they stacked right up against the Penguins. It was one of the best games of the year. Um, but there's two months of regular season hockey to go, and I'd be curious to see where they're at when that's all said and done. Now, with that being said, to answer your question, Tampa, that's it. That's the only team that makes me nervous about the Penguins going head-to-head with them with. And with that being said, I think the Penguins are starting to do themselves a pretty good service by pushing themselves into the Metro bracket and potentially avoiding Tampa until you could look ahead and see them in the Eastern Conference Final, which would be a heck of a series. Um, But that's the only time you'd match up with them if the Penguins continue to play how they are, which is obviously pretty encouraging on a lot of fronts. Josh, great stuff, man. We'll look forward to listening to you tonight. Appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Yeah, no problem, Adam. Thanks for having me. Take care, buddy. There he goes. Josh gets off who you can hear on the radio side calling the games uh, for a lot of the road games. And, of course, you can catch him on the Penguins live pregame show. Does a great job there as well. Coming up next, oh, Doran Dickerson's about to get it, baby. And why Penn State doesn't need Pitt. It's the Crowley Show. More puck coming your way, 5 o'clock until 6. Jason Mackey of the Post-Gazette going to be joining me here on the Crowley Show. But there's been a recent battle on Twitter.com between Penn State fanatics and the small faction of Pitt fans that exist in this world. I joke, I kid, sort of. Because Penn State released their football schedule for 2020 and Pitt is not on it. Pitt fans are livid and Penn State fans don't give two bleeps. Penn State fans shouldn't care. Penn State 
from their standpoint, doesn't need to play Pitt. I keep seeing Richie Walsh, the guy that somebody Crowley rolled on the nightly sports call the other day, on Twitter say, Penn State had the seventh biggest crowd in their history when Pitt came last year. People care about the rivalry. Yeah, people care about the rivalry, but what if you brought a Florida State in? You think 109,000 people are going to show up for that one? Yeah, I think so. Uh, what if you brought in Virginia Tech? What if you brought in premier programs from the area other than Pitt? West Virginia goes there in a couple of seasons. I don't think it was just because it was Pitt, although that definitely helps, certainly with older fans. But it's about playing in a marquee matchup against a team that you don't typically play. And for Penn State, they're trying to elevate their profile to national champion caliber. Uh, they want to build their resume every single year so that they can get into the national championship game. And that's what Pitt wants to shoot for, but Pitt's not there. Pitt's won nine games three times in the last 30-some-odd years. Uh, Pitt's not a resume-building team that you want to put on your schedule. They'll beat you if you're not careful. Uh, of course, as a West Virginia fan, I know that all too well. Penn State fans know that all too well from a couple of years ago, and Miami fans know that all too well from last year. Uh, Pitt will sneak up and get you. Why play a team that if you beat, there's no upside, and if you lose, it ruins your season? Uh, now, West Virginia didn't have a choice. Uh, West Virginia, they had to play them because it was the Big East. Penn State does not have to play Pitt. And Penn State losing to Pitt two seasons ago was one of the reasons they were kept out of the Final Four. Had they won that game, I think they're in. Didn't happen. And they get left out. If they win, it's not a resume builder. You just want to avoid the loss. So if I'm Penn State, I go out and I schedule programs who have won 11 games 10 times in the last 30 years. A team like Virginia Tech. Uh, I add teams from the area who are good that you still expect to beat because you're Penn State and you're all high and mighty, but can help your resume if you defeat them. Pitt fans are arguing that it's a great thing for their university, and they're 100% right. Pitt fans need Penn State. Pitt fans need West Virginia. West Virginia, same thing. West Virginia needs Pitt. It's better for them to have Pitt on their schedule than it is for them to have an NC State or a Tennessee, the teams that they're going to be playing this year in the non-conference. It's better for Pitt if they're going to play West Virginia or Penn State than, say, an Oklahoma State in the non-conference like they did last year in front of almost no one. Although I think my producer Tom was at that game. If you're Pitt, you need to sell tickets. If you're Pitt, you need to create buzz around the program. The most buzz I can recall for a Pitt game in my life was the Penn State game from a couple of years ago. I saw pit flags on houses all throughout town, and I never see that. They got them out because they hate Penn State. You don't see them busted out for any other reason than that. The pit pride isn't there. It's about beating Penn State. It's about beating West Virginia. I think it's important for a school like Pitt. So I'm not going to crush Pitt fans for pining after this rivalry. I'm not going to say Pitt shut up. But what I am going to say is Penn State fans, they're not wrong either. 412-922-2874. Tweet me at underscore Adam Crowley. I had more of the firm numbers a couple of months ago when discussing this right after 
Pitt and Penn State did play for the second time, but Virginia Tech's been a far more successful program in the last 30 years than Pitt. West Virginia's been a far more successful program in the last 30 years than Pitt. So if you want to play a local school that can help your resume, if you're Penn State, those are the schools you want to play. Pitt's not good, and they haven't been. And I realize their fans think every time they beat a really good team like West Virginia in 2007, like Clemson two years ago, and like Miami this year, that they're going to springboard and be something legit. That they're going to turn the program around. But we've not seen that happen. We see them step up from time to time and play above their talent level. We've seen them nip legitimate programs in the bud. But we haven't seen them translate that into sustainable success. And if you're Penn State, you want to play teams that have translated victories like that into success and stacked upon that because you want something that's going to matter when the selection committee is putting together who the final four teams are. And Pitt doesn't do it. And if Penn State fans don't want to play Pitt, what kind of rivalry is that anyway? The young Penn State fan doesn't give a rip about Pitt. And the old Penn State fan is so damn condescending when it comes to Pitt that it's not really a rivalry anyhow. It's just not from that standpoint. And I think Pitt has the big brother feel when they play West Virginia. I don't know what that's about because West Virginia has been the far more successful program over the last 30 years. But they're more equals than Penn State and Pitt are. That's why that rivalry makes more sense. Uh, because they both need each other. Uh, West Virginia's in the Big 12 where they don't have any rivals who fit the bill. Uh, they don't have any rivals that are geographical rivals. And, and that can be tough. Now, I'd rather West Virginia be in the conference than be in the old Big East. You'd rather be playing Oklahoma and Texas and have those big-time programs come into Morgantown every once in a while. But Sure would be nice to have Pitt back. And they do have it on the schedule coming up. But I think Pitt and West Virginia are better fits than Pitt and Penn State. Penn State doesn't need Pitt. Pitt needs a rival. But if Penn State doesn't care, then how big of a rivalry really is it? 412-922-2874. Tweet me at underscore Adam Crowley. Dale tweets. You mean like Nevada, and he doesn't tweet, he texts me, this is Dale Law. You mean like Nevada and San Jose? Those are some resume builders. Well, Penn State's going to have to change some things. Penn State needs to play more Power 5 opponents. Everyone's going that way. It's just going to take some time. But what's the benefit of playing a pit when they're not a resume builder and they're a rival who could sneak up and get you? If you play Nevada, they're not a resume builder, but they're not going to sneak up and beat you. If you're going to play Cupcake, play Cupcake with guys who aren't going to sneak up and beat you. That's the issue. If you're going to play teams that aren't going to help your resume, if you're going to play teams that are below you, beneath you, not on the same planet as you in terms of the talent they're bringing in consistently, then don't bring in a rival because at some t- at some points, rivals, they'll beat you. Tom and I always joke, you got to throw the records out when those teams play. It's a cliche. It's lame. It's true. Nevada not going to beat Penn State. Pitt 
more times than not, not going to beat Penn State. But when they rise up and do it, it'll hurt you in the resume department, and it can hurt a little bit locally here in the recruiting, which is something you probably also don't want to risk. There's a lot more to lose for Penn State than there is to gain. For Pitt, there's everything to gain, and really nothing to lose. What say you? 412-922-2874. Tweet me at underscore Adam Crowley. As I mentioned, Doran Dickerson before tweeted that Pitt sent 13 guys to the combine the last two years, and that's impressive to him. It is impressive, and it's something to take pride in. But wouldn't you rather win than send guys to the combine? Now, more times than not, those things go hand in hand. If you're successful in recruiting, you're going to win more games. Uh, I just read something on Rivals that says the teams that have had the best 10 recruiting classes over the last 10 years all have the top 10 records when it comes to college football. So talent generally leads to victory. That's not surprising. I'm not exactly breaking any news there. But to me, the fact that Pitt is sending 13 guys to the combine the last two years and only has a combined 13 wins to show for it, that should be disappointing to Panther fans. That shouldn't be something to be excited about. Hell, West Virginia's been sending players to the combine recently, specifically on the defensive side, and the defense, it's been good for the Big 12, but nationally it's not cracked the top 50. And you can take pride in being excited about your players going to the NFL combine, and I get that, but I'd rather West Virginia's defense be good. And if you're a Pitt fan, I'm sure you'd rather them be good too. Four one two nine two 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 eight seven four. Tweet me at underscore Adam Crowley. Oh boy, the big man is here. Well, the tall man, not so much the big man. Although big and tall, same difference. Jason Mackey joins me coming up next from the Post Gazette. His twenty things dropped this morning. Read them so you have context, and then we'll talk about them next. It's the Crowley Show.